don't know that this is the term that people use to describe it. Um, I've never heard anybody called a grand uncle before. But my sister Kathy, who lives here in Southern California, has recently been the first of my siblings to become a grandparent. And within a six-month period, she had two grandsons, like bam, bam, really fast, beautiful little boys, Christian and Bill. And so I become, I think, granduncle Chuck, which is really fun for me to think about because I know I was already an uncle. And I'm always fascinated by how people pick the names for their kids. There's a variety of ways that people do it. And it's a really important task because, well, frankly, it's a decision that sticks with that child forever. Unless they decide to change the name they were given at birth on their own, um, they're kind of stuck with this bad boy. Um, uh, And I think that uh, there have been some cruel parents over the years that have named their kids in ways that have not necessarily been beneficial for the child. The internet has tons of lists of these. I I can't use most of the names that some of these parents have chosen for their kids here at church, but I did find a couple that I thought were instructive. Uh, The Ball family named their daughter Crystal, and another young woman, unfortunately, um, was later in life arrested, and her name happened to be Crystal Methini, and I thought, wow, that's unfortunate. But perhaps the most ironic of names... Uh, was uh, Janelle Lawless, who ran to be a judge. Uh, And you say, you know, when you see her campaign sign, Lawless for Superior Court, you know, you think to yourself, wow, that, think of the irony associated with that. I, I also think it would be unfortunate to be named in advance of someone who became infamous. I mean, don't you sort of feel badly for all those little German boys who were named Adolf before World War II? I mean, there's a sense that mom and dad really didn't know what they were doing. It was a great moniker at one time, and then Hitler comes along and ruins it for everyone. He's not the only one to have done that. Uh, Other infamous people have ruined names, and I can demonstrate that by just saying their first name, and you don't think of anything but them. Like, for instance, if I say to you, Pablo, you go, yeah, there's some really nice Pablos in the world, and he messed it up for everybody, you know? In our country, it's Benedict. Yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch is from England. He feels really bad, like he came over here to be an actor. He's like, what's the problem? Why does everybody like my name? And that's because sometimes people can ruin it for you. For me, my name's Charles, and Mr. Manson and Prince Charles haven't done much to help me or this generation of people name their kids Charles. It's strange to me that some people get no long-term glory for their name, and other scoundrels do. Well, I don't want to make it a show of hands to see how biblically literate you are, but I have to ask you, um, what do you know of the biblical characters, Simon the Zealot or Bartholomew? Well, most people don't know that they were two of Jesus' 12 disciples. Now, they get no ink whatsoever. I mean, there's nothing about them in the New Testament other than that they were his disciples. They don't have books of the Bibles named after them. They don't have letters that were part of their world. The Coptic Christian church will trace some of their history traditionally to Bartholomew. But these guys seem to miss out, whereas 
it is odd that while scant reference is made to them, every Sunday around the globe, a certain notorious name is mentioned in worship. Uh, The Nicene Creed, which is spoken in communal liturgies in many churches, has the following phrase to declare what we believe about Jesus. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures. How did Pontius Pilate get into a church creed? I mean, that doesn't seem particularly fair, and I met if he not enjoying his eternal destination. He's probably sad that everybody has to remind him of what he did for the rest of eternity. But in many ways, you have to ask, who is he? He's a central character in today's text. He's a central character in the history of human redemption. Pilate was born uh, and then married into the royal family and then became the Roman governor over Judea who ordered the execution, the crucifixion of Jesus. And it was this decision that has made him such an important figure in history. Uh, So important that all four Gospels mentioned him, and John's Gospel in particular gives us details. What we know from other historical sources like the Jewish historian Josephus is that Pontius Pilate was a bit of a scoundrel. Um, He showed a lot of contempt for the Jewish people, Previous Roman governors would have been deferential to the traditions of the Jews and their proclivities religiously, and so when the Roman army would have come into Jerusalem, they wouldn't have had their standards and things possess idols of the false deity Caesar. Pilate seemed to enjoy jerking the chain of the Jews by doing that on purpose, and after a lot of political pressure, Uh, relented and stopped having these icons uh, on the standards of the effigies of Caesar anywhere in the city. Uh, But then he took the sacrilegious step of stealing the Jewish temple treasury to finance a public work, an aqueduct. I mean, that's real courage, if you want to call it that, or real stupidity. He went into the Jewish temple, took treasury money, and really caused great uh, like pain and cultural problems within Israel itself. And, and the emperor eventually rebuked him for this. So there was an ongoing tension that existed between Pilate and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership council of Jerusalem. He was no friend of theirs. In fact, he was an enemy. So it's odd that today they've said, we need your help. Because the last thing in the world this group of people would have wanted to do was go to him for anything. So why is that? Why did the Jewish leadership come to Pilate's place, his, his praetorium, the, the, the center, his, his office, his home, the place where he would stay when he came to Jerusalem? Well, we see that in our text. Verses 28 through 31 of today's passage in John 18 reads as such, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. 
Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge by your own law. Then the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Get the scene. First of all, if I was governor and anybody woke me up early in the morning, that right there would put me on edge. All right? I do not like being awakened by anybody but the Holy Spirit. All right? Uh, And so uh, he has to then deal with the insult that they wouldn't even come into the headquarters. So I don't know if he was in his jammies or what, but he comes out early morning and he goes, what do you, what do you want? And, and then they say, well, we have somebody we want you to, to deal with. And Pilate says, what, do you, what accusation? And they don't even want to go over this. They just want him to rubber stamp. Hey, if this guy wasn't evil, we wouldn't have bothered you. So they really want Pilate to just take their word for it. And so he tells them, well, judge it by your own law. And this is ironic because they already did that. This is really, there are really two trials involved here. And they've already done their diligence of saying, we think Jesus is a criminal. And we see in the final verse 31, the reason for bothering him this morning. And that is, we're not allowed to put him to death. The Jewish leadership was disallowed from using capital punishment. So they determined that they were going to need Pilate to do it for them. And because Pilate didn't want another uprising, he ultimately gives in to them. And it begs the question, so what? Why does Pilate play such an important part in our, you know, our, our Passover, our, our passion celebration, our passion recognition of Jesus' sacrifice? And it's because of what happens under Pilate's watch. Jesus is told that he's going to be condemned. The plan of salvation comes to fruition before our very eyes. And there's so much we can learn from Jesus and we can emulate from Jesus in the way he deals with the pressure of this situation. As Stephen has pointed out in the last couple of sermons, you know, Jesus gave away his life willingly. Nobody took it from him, but that doesn't mean that he didn't feel it deeply. Other gospel writers depict his time in the Garden of Gethsemane as agonizingly painful and anxiety-provoking. Jesus wasn't skipping through all of this. This was disconcerting. This was heartbreaking. This was frightening. Jesus walks through this with such dignity and honor. And really, we learn quite a bit about how we can walk through difficult circumstances. So there are practical applications in all this for us. But what Jesus says about the nature of His kingdom, His truth, and His righteousness have applications for us in our daily lives and beyond. And that's really what I would like to focus on this morning as we look at the influence of Pilate and why Pontius Pilate is such a critical part of this experience. We're going to look at kingdom, truth, and righteousness and begin by what Jesus says about his kingdom. The reality is, is his kingdom is our kingdom. In verse 36 of John 18, in answer to the question, are you a king? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus is making a bold statement here because without answering the question directly, he's saying, yeah, I have a kingdom, but it's not like y'all's kingdoms, 
y'all's is probably not the nomenclature he used, but he's saying, you know, it's not like the kingdom of the world. He's saying that my kingdom is spiritual. Now, that doesn't mean that it's just up in heaven and one day we'll be in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God penetrates every area of creation. Jesus was said to have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He says that at the Great Commission. So he is sovereign over all things. I liken the kingdom of God to the way certain fragrances permeate the atmosphere of a home. If you've ever stepped foot into my office here at Prism, I, I'm a big candle fiend. That's an homage to my Catholic upbringing. I love candles. And, uh, and I had five sisters, so I love fruity candles, and I'm secure enough in my masculinity to admit that. I love the way when I walk in, I just smell. And it's not just because this building's old, too, and I'm trying to cover up odors. I just love the way that it permeates. Uh, if you're not a candle person, let me give you another one. When you walk into a home, and immediately you get the smell of chocolate chip cookies. You know what that's like. You walk in, and it's not like the cookies are in the kitchen. All of a sudden, they're in and through everything. You can just feel it. Or it could be just me. You, you know cookies. You know, you, you can just, it permeates, it changes the atmosphere. It, it, it's in and through. And this kingdom of God it is the spiritual reign of Christ in our world. It manifests itself in the physical, but it's above the physical. It's in the physical. It's through the physical. The way Jesus is described is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, which means There are earthly kings and there are earthly lords, but Jesus is above and over all of them. He is the sovereign. He's in complete control. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6 that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of this world. They're spiritual. That's why we call people to prayer. There is a human responsibility, a Christian responsibility to be engaged in fighting the spiritual warfare with the spiritual tools that God has given us, prayer is one of them. The Word is another one of them. Jesus says to Pilate, if his kingdom were earthly in nature, his disciples would have started fighting for his freedom. And as we've seen, Jesus rebukes Peter when Peter pulls the sword and starts saying, I'm going to defend you. Jesus doesn't need Peter's help. He doesn't need any of our help. He is actually in complete control, knowing that from the beginning that he was destined to die for the sins of his covenant people, and in many ways, the soldiers who are taking him away are just pawns that Jesus is allowing to be used to bring about his ends. John Piper says this about his kingdom. He sits as king on his throne of the universe, and his kingly rule, his kingdom and his reign governs all things. The basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's kingly rule, His reign, His action, His lordship, His sovereign guidance. His kingdom is the kingdom of any child of God. Don't know where you live in the world? Don't know what country of this world you're a citizen? But let me tell you something. We are all primarily citizens of Christ's kingdom if you are his child. This should be a great comfort to us because as in Jesus' case, no matter what evil others may do to us, he has been given all authority and assures us that nothing happens to us 
without it being first ordained by Him. He's not surprised by the challenges. He's not surprised by the difficulties. They may be painful, but understand, you can find peace in knowing that they're purposeful. This reality was demonstrated by Jesus, who once again walks His talk. He is not telling us to do as He says, not as He does. He's actually walking through this boldly. He's navigating two kangaroo courts, these joke trials full of false accusations and an unjust crucifixion that will take place. An innocent man will die, but Jesus isn't troubled. He is overseeing the entirety of it. His kingdom is our kingdom. The children of God can walk with confidence in the middle of His will for us. And that should give us the capacity to rest and for some of us, it should be, give us the courage to take steps of faith. Places where you thought, oh, do I do this? I'm scared. Maybe, maybe what happens if this happens or that happens? Jesus is saying, I, if I'm calling you to do something, you can risk. I promise I'll be there to catch you. One thing I'll do when I'm bored with Internet access is I'll watch YouTube videos of people doing stupid things. That never gets old, I got to tell you. This past week, I stumbled upon a video of a young man who um, jumped off a cliff into the ocean. Now, I'd done this before. I was in the Bahamas once on a mission, and uh, the guy took us to the ocean, and there was this big rock, and we jumped off of this thing, and it was pretty far. I don't know how far, but he assured us he'd done it before, that the water was deep, and then he went first to show us that it was safe. And so, it all made sense to me, and I did it, and it was great. Um, in this video, there is no one going before this young man, and from his vantage point, he is at the edge of a cliff, and he is going to jump off this cliff into the ocean, and what happens is, is he's wearing a GoPro on his person. Halfway down, he realizes that once he got over the edge, he wasn't anywhere near the water, and, and so he is plunging towards the, 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 the dirt on the side of the water, and I don't know if the wind caught him just right or whatever, but at just the last minute, he barely misses the side and ends up in the water, and I imagine he broke some things along the way, but you can hear him yelling, oh, fill in the blank, and he realizes, I'm in huge trouble here. See, his perspective was bad. He, he didn't know what was ahead of him. He was foolishly plunging forward. That's silly risk. For the believer... We're assured that if we're walking with Jesus and He asks us to do risky things, that He's got a safety net. He's gone before you. He knows what's involved. It may be frightening to you, but you can rest assured that He's watching you. And that's the benefit of His kingdom, His sovereign rule. His kingdom is our kingdom. Jesus goes on to tell Pilate something else, and that is that He is truth. And so we can take away from this that his truth is our truth. Pilate says to Jesus, so you, you are a king. And Jesus answers, you say that I'm a king. Well, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? Now, I say it that way, because I've done a little bit of research to discover that scholars know that Pilate wasn't 
like a seeker-sensitive guy looking for answers. What is truth? You know, he wasn't Brad Pitt walking the hills of Tibet asking for answers. He was saying cynically, what is truth? This is the, the ethos of our culture, the cynicism of people that say, oh, that's your truth, my truth. How would we even know truth? What is truth? Please. This is really what he's asking. Well, Jesus in multiple places has said, he's the truth and he will set you free. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And stating this, he says he was the singular way, the measure of truth, and the means to life, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him, John 14, 6. In John 8, these are passages we've studied in our long trek through the Gospel of John. Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is the truth. The truth will set you free. If you're looking for liberation from the prison of not knowing, Jesus, our King, is here. Matthew Henry, another biblical scholar, writes, when Christ said, I am the truth, he said, in effect, I am a king. He conquers by the convincing evidence of truth. He rules by the commanding power of truth. The subjects of this kingdom are those that are of truth. This, for us, means that Jesus can and does give us guidance through life's challenges. When He speaks, it is by definition of truth. It is by definition truth. He's the fountain of all truth. And therefore, if you want and need the stability that would come from knowing which way is up and which way is down, and boy, in our culture, isn't that a real need? What's north? What's south morally? What's east morally? What's west morally? What's true? What's false? Jesus is saying in verse 38 of our passage today to Pilate, everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. Think of the arrogance if he wasn't the Son of God. I mean, think if I said to you all, listen, if you're on the side of truth, you're going to listen to Chuck Ryer. If you, I ever do that, just run. You know what I mean? Post on the internet. Just, it's, what a, I'm, a, I'm a disaster waiting to happen. And you, we've seen that in religious history. Crazy people that end up being cult leaders because they assume this role of being the fountain of truth. Jesus is the only one who can make that claim, and he does. It's remarkable. He says, everyone who's of truth listens to me. This means that what Jesus says about things is true. The logical conclusion the Christian would have to draw is that what Jesus says is right and correct and accurate. And if there is anything that is clearly the antithesis of what Jesus is saying, it is false. It is an error. Jesus is the truth. And when you know him, you're secure in his declaration of true. And this is especially the case as it comes to his representation of the character of God the Father. He says that for this purpose I was born to bear witness to the truth. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was the exact 
imprint, the exact representation of the Father's being. Jesus was born for the, for the purpose of truthfully displaying these attributes so that we could see clearly what God the Father was like. You don't have to guess. Friend, you don't have to be confused. Jesus is the truth. His truth is our truth. His kingdom is our kingdom. And the last thing he shows us in this passage with Pilate is that his righteousness is our righteousness. Verses 38 through 40 of our passage in John 18 read, After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Perhaps my favorite part of the Pontius Pilate narrative is the role he plays in giving us a picture of the theological doctrine, vicarious substitutionary atonement. Uh, Effectively, what that means is that Jesus died in your place, that He, through His person, absorbed all of the judgment that was due you, and if you're His child, He became your atoning sacrifice. He was substituted for you. It means that in the same way the guilty criminal Barabbas was released from prison, and the innocent Jesus, whom Pilate declared not guilty, no guilt in him, was sentenced to die. This exchange is what theologians refer to as imputation, double imputation, really. It's that the sin of Barabbas got put on Jesus. The sin, the the holiness of Jesus was extended to Barabbas. Barabbas, a criminal, a career criminal, set free Jesus, not guilty, no fault in him, sentenced to die. This is the picture of what salvation is for you and for me. Paul wrote of it in 2 Corinthians verses 19 through 21 when he said, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their, transpre- their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see this transfer, our sin to Jesus on the cross the Father's abandonment of Him, His righteousness to us, the Father's embrace of us. This transfers imputation. I, sometimes I think of the term pewter when I think of this. Uh, if you've ever had a pewter mug and you put ice in it, uh, the mug all of a sudden gets cold. I was informed in the first service that if I'm to understand this correctly from a chemical standpoint, the heat is leaving the pewter, the ice is melting because the heat has left that. But what you see effectively is the transfer. You're seeing heat transferred to ice and it melting. You're seeing all of a sudden now this warm mug becoming cold. This is remarkable because when this happens for us, we are given the righteousness of Christ. 
It has permeated your whole being. His righteousness has now become ours. This is what you see in the mob's call for the release of Barabbas, Jesus, the innocent one, sentenced to die. Barabbas, the thief, given amnesty and complete liberation from the guilt and punishment for his admitted sins. You, friend, are as secure in the guarantee that you're going to heaven as Barabbas was secure that he was going to avoid the punishment for his sin. This is an area of Christian faith that's very close to my heart because like many of you, I was raised in a church but didn't enjoy going very much. Then I understood the gospel and embraced Jesus and surrendered to him, but it was in a context in a church where they believed that a bona fide Christian could lose their salvation or forfeit the freedom from judgment that they were once given In our passage here, we see that once Barabbas was given clemency for his wrongdoings, he he was not punished for them ever again. He was liberated completely. Jesus, dying for your sins, died for all of them, past, present. He died for sins, Christian child, that you haven't committed yet. You are secure in Christ because Jesus took on your sin the sin of anyone who would ever believe. And then he gave his righteousness as a gift so that we would know that we, in the Father's sight, were now seen as holy because Jesus was declared publicly, legally, as having no fault in him. God, the Father, now declares that those who trust in Christ have no fault in them. His righteousness is our righteousness. His truth is our truth. His kingdom reigns and rules over our kingdom. And that is because he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures. Let us pray. What a joy it is this season, Father, to celebrate what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to absorb the judgment due sinners like me and the grace that is extended that would demonstrate that you can forgive anything, that you can take that which is unholy a man like Barabbas and liberate him from the judgment and punishment that he was due. That's true for us too. We thank you for it. And we celebrate communion today as you've commanded to remember again that the means by which we know we're at peace with you is what you've done for us by dying. Friends, we have communion every week here, and we're praying and hoping that it is not a ritual, that it would serve as a tangible reminder for you of what Christ has done for you. It is actually something physical to help you see that which is spiritual. It's very much like the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus came so that we wouldn't have to guess at the character of God anymore. We can see love and grace and patience in ways that we never would have been able to know, it was almost too good to be true. 
And now, because of Christ, you can rest that he's patient, that a bruised reed he will not break. This is our, this is our God, and this is his disposition towards the humble. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but if you're broken, he's like, yeah, you're mine. He just throws his arms around you if you are humble. So when he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. And after supper, he took a cup of wine. And this was the symbol of the blood of the covenant. This is what he was going to do so that you'd be able to rest assured that his righteousness would be your righteousness, that the Father would have cleansed you from all your sins. Our, our command from Scripture is that we would do this to remember that we're at peace with Him. If you're a child of God, if at some point in your life you've trusted Christ as Savior, you're invited to the table. Um, This is, if you're willing to say, I know the only way I would be right with the Father is through Christ, then the table's for you. By coming and taking communion here at our church, you're saying, I am trusting and following Jesus. Now, it may have been a while since you've been to the table, But this is a table of restoration. It's a table of remembrance to say, oh, that's right. He's already made me holy in his sight. I don't need to get holy so that I can come and take communion. I'm coming to the Father and saying, I need help. This is my moment of need. And he will meet you there.